Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Welcome everyone to what I'm sure is going to be a wonderful conversation with Michael Kirby and Bo Sio. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Writers' Festival and I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, this session is supported by one of our wonderful partners, the Jib Foundation, and I wanted to acknowledge their support. I'm going to hand over to these two conversationalists to take you through to a new understanding of how to have good arguments. Michael Kirby and Bo Sio. Bo, uh, thank you for inviting me to be your interrogator and uh, for participating. And you've asked me to do so in a very active way. Um, so I, I want to start with a reservation I have about the whole nature of the book. The book was written because you were a fantastically successful international um, student debater uh, and you were the world champion twice. But uh, some debates are really existential. Um, you might say destroying nuclear weapons, um, dealing with climate change, perhaps in an Australian context, readjusting our relationship with the indigenous people. It's not just something you have a serious talk about and then forget about. So, and you mention Stan Grant on the last page of your book, interestingly. Um, so, uh, is some debate just too important for being persuasive? Isn't the outcome really the essence of it? Justice Kirby, I'm going to filibuster a little bit um, because I was hoping we would start with a softball <laughs> question. You, you um, never do that in cross-examination, <laughs> you throw them off. That's right. Um, I want to start by thanking the Sydney Writers' Festival. <laughs> um, but, but seriously, this is a festival that, when I was growing up in this city, made literature feel very close. And it's not, the festival is not just the organizers and the volunteers, but it's all of you. So thank you for being willing to hear us out today. And let me thank you too, Justice Kirby. I know you don't um, take too easily to praise. Oh, no. So, um, <laughs> you, don't, you don't take to it too hard either. Um, but so I'll keep it at these two remarks. The first is that the beautiful passages in your memoirs about growing up following James Dean around the theatres um, are, are for me some of the most important and beautiful passages in Australian letters. Thank you for writing them. And second of all, and simply, you are the person I admire most in the world. Oh. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, your parents are here and they are remarkable people. Uh, maybe uh, leaving your parents aside and about 4,000 other people, uh, I'd accept that. But let's get back to the top. <laughs> we don't have time to waste. All right. Uh, uh, 
So, all right, I'll switch gears. No, I'll, no, I'll, I'll answer the question. I'll answer the question. You've had time to think I've had time to think about it. Yeah. I've had time to think about it. So, um, for me, the suggestion that we can't have debate because what matters is the outcome is a claim that can be made by both sides who may be on opposing ends, right? And what that suggests to me is there will always be gridlock as long as we're unwilling to go through the exercise. And debate isn't just about trying to change the other person's mind. It's about putting your thoughts in a way that's organized, that tries to make yourself comprehensible to the other person, that says through the course of discussion we're going to be in a better place than where we've started. It, I don't think there is even on some of these most difficult issues rushing it, rushing to conclusion without that dialogue. So for me, um, I'm very skeptical of the idea that because we're in emergency circumstances, this is a line that, that sometimes gets used in um, debates about torture, for example, right? We're dealing with an emergency, we have to act. I don't think that speeding through the process of deliberation helps in very many instances. It's uh, interesting that you should say that because, as you know, I chaired a commission of inquiry for the UN on North Korea. And that is a semi or actual existential problem. And for years, we didn't talk to Kim Jong-un. Well. And this must have been on your mind because of the fact that you are a Korean-Australian. Uh, but then Mr. Trump came along and he immediately insulted um, uh, Kim Jong-un at the United Nations and said he would lay waste to North Korea. But next, throwing him off, uh, he said, why don't we meet? Yes. And I thought at the time, this is very unusual. Mr. Trump is very unusual. <laughs> but uh, I thought, now that's worth trying. But when he got there, instead of doing what a diplomat would do or maybe a debater would do, work around the outer circle, go leave the central issue alone, uh, find how you can have uh, improvement in m rail services, mailing services, telephone services, mm -hmm. and then ultimately work your way to the core issue in the middle. Mr Trump went straight to the middle and wanted a deal and he wanted it now. And that just wasn't going to happen. And, uh, but that tends to bear out your argument that argument itself has a, a value in itself and can sometimes lead to the core after you've laid the ground. But it's really a matter of laying the ground in an effective way. I think you're quite right that um, the fact that I was born in South Korea has some bearing in terms of my interest on this subject, right? That a fairly arbitrary artifact of history can be the basis on which a nation can be divided, on which enmities can be fostered, um, that our ability to negotiate these dividing lines and borders can be a matter of 
it can be an existential matter, right? It can be a matter of survival. So I think that's the first point. And I think the second, um, what I hear in your description is part of what I'm trying to argue for is by reclaiming the art of argument, the craft, the work of it, you might be able to expand the range of things that we can talk about. And that might involve, as you say, starting on the areas that we think may be more amenable to debate, then working into the more difficult issues. There are a series of habits that you cultivate by doing that. There's a relationship that deepens as you do that. And so even to your point earlier, I don't think Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un are the paradigms of the kind of debate that I have in mind, but, um, but it may be that even there, starting by finding the issues we can talk about and working out the way in which we're going to do that is going to make more of the world yield to debate and conversation, and I think that would be a healthy thing. Yes, I just thought I would sort of test your thesis and your defence of the, the book by <laughs> How did I do? Uh, uh, what I thought was a really um, central problem of how you get debate, how people who don't want to debate can be brought into debate, and then how you structure the debate in order to make some progress. But you've referred to the fact that you were born in the uh, Republic of Korea, South Korea, <clears throat> and you came here with your parents. What made your parents come to Australia? What, what, what led to their bringing this bright little boy uh, and such a blessing to our country? It's very kind of you. They're sitting right there. Um, <laughs> and I admire them a, an enormous amount as well. <laughs> No, that's not good enough. <laughs> You've already got your title. You're going to have to give them a big hug after. Okay. I'll do that. Um, you know, I think they would say there were um, enormous educational opportunities in this country. There were professional opportunities for them too. But I think it's true of many migrants that there's just a, an instinct within that says there's something on the other side and they have to go seek it out. Um, and so uh, we moved um, when I was halfway through year three in primary school. And um, you went to pub local public schools, I think, first up. Uh, you know that I'm a great supporter of public education, but I'll try to, I'll try to avoid... Uh, you, you ended up on a scholarship at Barker, Barker College, which is a good, a very good, uh, I think it's Anglican-based, uh, and uh, um, was Mr. Whitlam a, 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 an alumnus? I don't no, know. I think he might have been Knox, at one of those posh schools in the northern <laughs> suburbs. But, um, and uh, tell, tell us how Mr. Hood, who's referred to in the book, helped you to get the confidence as a young uh, Asian-Australian boy in a class mainly of whiteies, mainly from the establishment. Now, how did Mr. Hood get you out of yourself in order yeah. that you would start taking a part in stressful debating at school? So the story um, for me starts in 
year five. Um, so I come to this country halfway through year three, and I don't speak English. And for um, those of you in the audience who've had that experience of crossing language lines, um, if your experience was like mine, the hardest part of doing that is adjusting to real-life conversation. And the hardest conversations to adjust to are disagreements. And as you suggested, Justice Kirby, as you know, one of few Korean um, kids at the school, not many more Asians, I felt that, and this too, I think a lot of newcomers to a place have felt, I felt that my belonging to this society was conditional on not rocking the boat or speaking out too much. And I felt that drawing attention to my differences in disagreement would unsettle any belonging that I had been able to achieve. And that was, um, in my family, the imperative, right, to find a place in this uh, society that we had moved to. And so the combination of those things made me resolve to be very agreeable, to smile and nod and keep most of my thoughts to myself. And the thing that broke me out of that was a promise that my year five teacher made me, this was still slightly before Mr. Hood, um, that on the debating team, when one person speaks, no one else does. And to someone who had been interrupted and spun out of conversation and uh, just befuddled in a myriad different ways, that promise of silence and attention was completely irresistible. <laughs> and um, so that made me join the debate team. And it was through that that I had a, a number of very important mentors and teachers who helped me find my voice. One of them was Mr. Hood, who um, in middle school and high school taught me it wasn't always about winning and losing. You know, we, we would have debates where we would win by defining the topic to our advantage, by um, putting forth a sneaky argument that was you know, flowery but not very substantial. And he would be very unforgiving of that. And what he would say is, individual wins and losses matter, but what matters a lot more is that we play the game by a set of rules we can endorse, knowing there will be wins and losses. And so that sportsmanship of argument um, was something I, I took away from uh, Mr. Hood. Well, when I was at school, at Fourth Street High School, I, I was a part of a winning team uh, in debating, but it was a winning team of the state of New South Wales. You were the world. And I want to know how you got from Mr. Hood and uh, a shy little uh, boy from um, South Korea. How did you get, uh, what was the journey that took you to be the world champion debater uh, twice? Um, and all in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a kind of an obsession for me, and it was an obsession grounded, like many obsessions, um, in absence. 
I lived in the absence of language, and I sought it. Um, I sought it one word at a time, knowing that this word means something else from this word, right? It, I had a greed for it. I lived in the absence of having a voice, and so when I was given the opportunity to present myself not only in my similarity to others, but in difference, um, I found myself going back to it again and again. And I found that as I trained, so I competed for my school, then for New South Wales, then for Australia. That's how you get to the, um, the World Championships. Um, I found that what I had understood to be my great disadvantage, which is I listen a lot before I speak, and sometimes I listen for too long, <laughs> and the conversation has moved on. Um, or I read a room before I make an intervention as a matter of survival at, at points. That those things that I had understood to be my biggest handicaps or disadvantages turned out to be my, my greatest strength as a debater. So in the book, I go through what I consider the five skills of debate, knowing the topic, making an argument, making rebuttal, rhetoric, how to use silence, or when to know to argue and when to step away. All of those components I consider variants of listening. Listening to what it is that we're talking about, what it is that I believe, what the other side is saying. So um, I think those elements of my background were very important um, for my career. But can I ask you a question? Do you want to? Yes, of course. Which is, I mean, you were the state champion. You were, of course, a justice of the high court, and you had this extraordinary career there in There was a little bit in between. <laughs> <laughs> and I think people would want to know how it is that you came to find your voice in argument. Was debating a part of it? How, how did you get there? It's interesting that uh, Bo mentions getting a voice. It's interesting for us as a country and a people to reflect upon the importance of getting a voice and feeling that he can have a voice. <laughs> I, I went out to my high school this morning. Uh, they had collected the student leaders of the high school. They were not prefects as we were in my day. They were an elected group and they organised a meeting from all the high schools of Sydney in the, uh, in the public education system. And uh, they uh, really are getting their voice and insisting on their voice. But I, I told them at the beginning of my address that I was very, very nervous, mm. very nervous when I started debating. Uh, and I don't know, I'm going to ask you whether you were nervous, so I've given you notice of that. Yes, you can yes. think about that. <laughs> I won't start thanking people. But, um, <laughs> uh, and that it's all right, and that's part of our human nature, and uh, uh, they needn't worry about it, because you get to a point where you're not nervous, and then you can concentrate on the subject and not on your own ego. Yes. But um, uh, I, I think... Um, 
being at peace with yourself and knowing what you want to say and what you've got to say in the short time. Um, and this is a, a, a bit of a challenge to the thesis of the book, that you can't sit there thinking forever because you only have a certain amount of time in structured debating uh, or even in semi-structured public discussion. You can't just sit there thinking. You've got to move it along. So did you get nervous and have you ever sort of had too long uh, to um, think and not enough time to say anything? <laughs> um, I did get very nervous, um, terrified. I mean, you know, the first debate when I was in year five was on the subject of banning all zoos and I was the first affirmative speaker. And I was so nervous going up on the primary school um, hall stage that I squeaked <laughs> with each step. And it's, it's a wonder um, the human body's capacity to squeak. At, you know, and, it, and it's unclear how it happens anatomically, but um, it, it happened. And um, one thing that, I don't know if this was your experience, but that debating made slightly easier is at least in some of the times you're arguing for something you don't yourself believe, right? So you're assigned a topic and you're assigned a side. So at least half the time um, you may be arguing against your actual belief. And for me, um, there was tremendous relief in that, that you could take a break from the burden of ego, as you said, from the burden of certainty, of feeling entrenched in your position. And it's not that um, the play acting continues indefinitely. It's just that for that period of an hour, you appear in some sense completely as yourself because you have to use the full resources of your mind and personality to try and persuade, but you're also given a certain safety and a security in which to play. Um, children take very easily to that form of play and equally it's a very rare thing for adults right, to be able to say, step aside from my background, my ego, the features of my identity and let's talk about these ideas in a different way. I mean, one, one um, part of that that I wanted to ask you about is that experience of coming at these things as an outsider, right? So part of my nerves, I think, in debating um, and in my approach to arguments is um, I often felt I'm not usually the kind of person who is holding the microphone. And you're quite right that in many instances I do still wait too long before I make an intervention. Um, and I wondered what that experience was like for you, whether the experience of being an outsider, growing up as an outsider, changes your approach to argument or to conversation. Well, it's interesting. I haven't thought about that problem, but maybe because I was growing up uh, as a young gay boy uh, and not able to talk about this 
thing that was so important in my life, even to my parents who are most loving and young parents or my siblings or my grandmother, uh, that was a very difficult time. And I think going into debating against the nerves was like driving myself to prove to myself you are not an abomination, you are not unworthy, uh, and you can make uh, something in your life and you can contribute. And um, uh, maybe it also made me a bit of a contrarian. Do you think that your being a minority <laughs> ethnicity made you a, a bit of a contrarian in, in leave aside the debating, but in life generally. You're saying this is what made you the great dissenter. Uh, well, uh, I don't accept that, that <laughs> title, but I, I think it made me test propositions, which according to your book is what your, your thesis of the value of a polite debate is very important, um, that you're testing the boundaries, you're text testing other people's views. Yes. Um, in my case, I don't know um, whether the word contrarian feels quite right, but I have always felt myself to be outside the established view. And, um, and I've always found my position to be on the outside or on the periphery, looking at things from a certain critical distance. Um, and, you know, I used to think that was kind of an unusual feature um, of my being a migrant or something else, but now I now live in the United States, and I now tend to think it's a kind of an Australian outlook in some way too. I mean, here we are um, on the periphery of the world, Ours is not the dominant voice that carries around the world. We are afforded a certain kind of distance that gives us a sense of irony, a sense of humor, an ability to poke and prod. And so um, I don't know if I would describe that as contrarian, but I, I, I am quite used to um, viewing things from the distance of the periphery. In your book, you give some very interesting examples of real-life debate amongst extremely important people. Uh, for example, uh, the debate between Nixon and uh, Kennedy uh, and how Kennedy was way behind in the, in the polls, but um, he came forward because he had a better performance. And also, as we've all read, uh, he was well lit, and, and <laughs> poor old Nixon had his uh, after five shave and uh, didn't have it. And uh, uh, did uh, and you you mention also uh, the the time Khrushchev visited the United States and went to Hollywood and Disneyland and so on. Um, there aren't so many examples of Australian. Uh, uh, interest or speciality. Is that because you were aiming this book mainly <laughs> at an American market in order to make lots of money out of the book? <laughs> or is that simply that these are well-known illustrations of a universal phenomenon? That's a great question. 
Um, Don't feel embarrassed to say you want I'm to make a lot of I'm just trying to think puns. about the, the latest royalty statement and how, <laughs> how off base that must be. Um, uh, you know, in, in those things, I, I did want um, the book to speak to a universal audience. Um, and I felt that, um, you know, especially with the Khrushchev-Nixon um, debate, it was a world, it was a moment in which a conflict that engulfed the entire world was personified in a conversation between two people, right? So to your point before about existential issues, things that seem to elude the grasp of language, here, were, here was a moment where the great conflict shaping the world fell in an encounter and a conversation between two people. I found that irresistible as an opportunity to pass up. Um, I used that debate to go through um, some of the strategies that debaters have come up with for conversing with uh, bad faith actors, right? And I think this is a, you know, something that's on a lot of people's minds. And one of the tactics, for example, of a bad faith debater is to say no to everything, right? So for any proposal you put forward, they have a million reasons why that's not gonna work out. And the prescription for dealing with such a person is to turn around and say, well, what's your proposal? Right, so that there will be some basis of comparison. Um, so what I was hoping to do with these illustrations is explain the role that debate has played in the shaping of world history, but also um, to use them as um, useful illustrations for doing the, some of the teaching that I wanted to do. Uh, and um, are there other illustrations of your thesis in the book and why have you not um, digested the essence of your thesis so that there are the six rules that you need <laughs> and uh, that this is what will sell the book, not only to the general audience, but especially to young people who are beginning out uh, like yourself and need to know the basics, the, the guts of how to do it well. So the, um, the book does have some real te teachable skills, right? And it's not put in a separate section of the book, and, and I'll give you the reason for that. But my hope is in reading the book, people will be able to go from knowing nothing about the activity, which is what I knew when I started, to knowing quite a bit, right? And knowing all of the basic components. The reason why I wrote it the way I did, which is... Um, a combination of teaching, but really a memoir, right? It reads like my life story. It's because I wanted to lead people one step at a time through the journey of learning. Um, and I wanted to be um, honest about where these insights are coming from, right? So my perspective travels with me every time I get on a bus. I'm, I'm not seeing everything um, from some bird's eye distance. And so being clear about where these insights are situated um, and where they came from was an important part of my writing. 
talking about getting on the bus, when I get on the train or the bus early in the morning, I see everybody is looking at their mobile phone. Nobody is taking the pause that you say is very important uh, and looking at the world, looking at the beauties of the world and the things that need to be done. Do you, are you concerned about whether digitization and script, reducing human relationships to script, is going to make it harder to have debates because people just don't talk as much? Even in restaurants, you go and a young couple are sitting there and they're texting each other, which is <laughs> very strange to a person of my age. Um, it sounds a bit as though uh, you, you don't do that either. And, uh, I don't. That's reassuring. <laughs> I worry about that. Um, I do, because one of the things that you learn in debating is... Um, the language, the sentences, that's just a small part of the experience of being in conversation, right? So how do you look at someone and see whether you are getting through, right? How do you learn to get a sense of the weather in the room into which you are speaking? Um, I think those are not only extraordinarily important skills of communication, but that is really the substance of our living together. And for me, an important um, thing to keep in mind as we disagree is even if we defeat another person, the important thing in debating is you're going to see them the next week right? on a different side of the motion, on a different topic. You're going to see them next month the individual wins and losses aren't as important as the fact that we live together. On the internet, I think you can fool yourself into thinking if you own the libs um, on Twitter or, or um, whatever the equivalent for the conservative side is, that you just kind of banish them. Right? You've ratioed them, you won't hear the, from them again. Whereas for me, the hope is found in the conversation continuing, and that involves our living together. Now, uh, you went recently as part of the promotion of the book to your original homeland. And, of course, they've had a very close election. They changed their government. And that itself is a very admirable thing, and it's not uh, universal. Did you get tempted when you were up there to think of using your skills to address uh, the political issues in the Republic of Korea and to take a part in solving what appears to be an insolvable problem? Um, you know, I, uh, I started the tour speaking in English because now my Korean is imperfect. And... Um, Halfway through, I switched to doing all the events in Korean because I just found that I couldn't connect um, with the audiences. And if I was on a book tour about a book, in part about the courage of speaking across differences, linguistic and cultural, um, I might as well try and embody it. 
Um, so I, uh, so to answer your question, I was busy trying to string together a sentence that makes sense uh, in Korean. Um, and, and I have to say, I was very cautious about wading into the local politics. Well, that's um, natural and, and appropriate. Because uh, uh, feelings run very deep, uh, as I found when I was doing the UN inquiry. But what about Australian politics? We need people who will take time, will think, will answer rationally, um, and not talk too much. Um, <laughs> so do you think, <clears throat> what are you going to do with this enormous talent uh, and the theories that you've propounded in the book, which will uh, be an ultimate payback to the country that got you into the position that <laughs> you, you're in? That's true. What's the um, dividend for us? I mean, <laughs> and for reference, Justice Kirby has been asking me a variant of this question every time we've met for about 10 years. <laughs> um, you know, you're quite right. I owe a great deal to this country. I, um, I feel a, an enormous responsibility towards it, and I feel a lot of hope for its future um, too. And when I, um, go about my work and studies in the United States, I do feel like I am bringing to it a distinctively Australian perspective, right? An Australian perspective that is hybrid, that is between worlds, the beneficiary of, um, a world-class education system, um, and so uh, whether my services there, um, likely in the law for the next few years at least, um, or here, and my work here was in, in journalism, um, I hope to continue to make that kind of contribution. Um, I'd like to ask you finally about what it was like growing up um, in, uh, as a, a school student in a class <clears throat> which overwhelmingly was of Anglo-Celtic origin. I once asked John Yu, who was at school, he was a prefect four years ahead of me, uh, and he became Australian of the Year and a professor of paediatrics, Chancellor of University of New South Wales. And he was only one, I would think, of about 10 Asian Australians at Fort Street High School at that time. And I'm sure it was much the same for him as it was for you. Mm -hmm. uh, he's become a wonderful citizen and we're lucky to have him. Um, but it would not have been surprising if he had been a bit resentful of how the cards had worked out and he was there at a time of white Australia. At <coughs> least a lot of the theories have changed now but do you feel that you take, uh, you have any scars from that time? Or do you think being twice a world champion and a, uh, a book um, author, which is definitely worth reading and buying, <laughs> uh, do you think that uh, you've overcome whatever were the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune at your time of your first encounters with Australia and Australianism? I'm certain that my 
being a two-time world debate champion might be a big overcompensation for something, <laughs> right? And, um, and to that extent, who can rule out the scars of childhood? Um, and that's not just me. I think that's um, for so many of us. It's a special sacrifice that the migrants to this country have paid. Uh, it's in my home, my partner Jan from yes. the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands culture is very similar, but it's not the same. It's very direct and sometimes rather rude. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, it is a sacrifice, you know. It's not just changing your, your food and other things. It's a big change to ask so many of our fellow citizens to have made. And there are still others knocking on the door who'd like to make it. Yes, yes. I... Um just to one, give you one important part of that dynamic from inside that experience, um, a big part of it was wrapped up with family, right? So um, when you immigrate to a new place, before your parents are kind of giants in your eyes as a kid, right? They're completely established in society. Um, they have a place, a status, a rank that you don't as a kid. Um, when you move... When you immigrate, things tend to equalize a little bit more. Right? You become reliant on each other to do basic things like you know, find the soup when you go to the um, supermarket because you don't know where it is. And it happens that their English was initially better than mine, but then mine caught up. And so there was a kind of reliance that came in. And um, that sense that we were in it all together that my perspective mattered even as a kid, um, I think that was an important part of the experience. But I, um, I think for me, maybe because I was younger, maybe because I was part of a generation that is starting to move around a lot, um, there were sacrifices and, and loss of parts of myself, but there was an enormous amount gained too. Um, and uh, I'm not sure I would reverse the trade. Well, uh, it's now 15 minutes to go, and we've got to be democratic and have some questions. <laughs> but I, I think you'll agree that uh, we've, we have in our presence a really remarkable uh, example of how blessed we are as a nation to have had so many people, um, especially against our background, that have come here to be amongst us and to help to educate us and to give us their world of the spirit uh, in a way that is very generous. And I, I would like to thank uh, Bo's parents who are somewhere out there. I've not met them. They, they <laughs> put this in place. Okay. So if you want to ask a question, there are microphones on both sides. Please uh, come up to them. But meanwhile, we've got some written questions. Okay. One of them is, what do you think is the most memorable debate you ever participated in? This is from the Mackay Library. Oh, I think for me it would have to be the, um, the first one um, in year five where I was going up on stage, that squeaky kid, and... Um, 
you know, the thing that I remember from that debate is looking out into the audience and seeing all these small changes. I saw someone smile, someone nod, um, someone cringe their eyes um, in recognition of what I had said. And it made me think that whereas up until then, I thought the world was fixed in place and I would have to change myself to fit around it, that perhaps through the power of language or through words, I could change something about the world um, as well. Is there, is there an, an instance like that for you, Justice Kirby, where you felt in raising your voice, you can, you can change something about your circumstances? Well, um, I think the fact that my partner, Jan, insisted that we be open about the issue of sexuality. That gave me a voice. If I'd found that voice earlier and given expression to it, I would not have been appointed a judge. I would not have received all the appointments, all the honours and the glory. Well, That's the truth at that time. And so you've got to choose the time of your debates, not just... Uh, but anyway, we're not here to talk about me. We're here... To <laughs> Endlessly fascinating that that may be. <laughs> but the, the next question is from Kate at, at Gladstone Library. How do you get That's debating what... back into public schools? I have one child in primary, one in high school, and neither have any had any expression in debating. Do you want to start on that? I, I think that that may not be a typical... Uh, experience yes. nowadays. I think in private and public schools there is a strong, much more than in my time. I mean, I used to watch in the early days of television American students getting up and they were very articulate, whereas Australians were often inarticulate. But now they're much more articulate and, uh, and you're a very good example. So... Um, <laughs> I think it just requires, what do you think? It requires more illustrations of how in the world of debating you can find lessons for life. Yes. I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, whenever I see young kids, I just think the instinct to debate is innate. It's already there. They're pushing buttons saying stuff it's not clear they believe just to just to push you a little bit and so there must be something about the world that dulls that instinct over time that curiosity over time and so i i i think one of the great strengths of the australian education system public as well as private um is its strength in debate and the way in which to bring it into schools is um, to recognize its value, to know the, the costs are not enormous. Um, it doesn't require equipment. Um, it requires supervision. That's the main um, cost. But also to view the introduction of these programs as not instilling an instinct that's not there, but giving voice to them. There's somebody with a question here. Would you introduce yourself briefly and uh, ask the question briefly? Thank you both Hello. very much. Um, my name's Nicole. I'm a, a doctor and hold passionate opinions, Terrific. many would say. Um, my question is, how do you stop passionate debate um, slipping into anger? Mm. Um, and um, 
you know, do you really think that's a teachable or trainable skill? Um, perhaps it's more relevant to informal debate than, than formal debate, but interested in your thoughts on, on that. It's a problem for me, I think, and perhaps many. <laughs> I'll start. Well, um, so I have two thoughts on that. So one is, um, in debating, the object is not to put away your emotions and to debate as like a robot, but to channel the emotions, right? So in debating, you learn that an argument has to do certain things. Right? And one shorthand I have in the book is to say, you have to be clear on the four Ws. What is the point you're making? Why is it true? When has it happened before? Can you give an example or a case study? And who cares? Why should it change my mind? And the exercise of organizing your thinking so that it's comprehensible to the other side, that it answers some of these questions, I think doesn't get rid of the emotions, but it cools them. That's one thing. The other thing that I've found helpful is um, after you've done that, after you've come up with arguments and you've organized your case, one of the things that a debater knows to do is to turn to a new sheet of paper and come up with the best arguments for the other side, right? Or to look back on what you've prepared and poke as many holes in it as you can find. And that experience of being in the switched position of feeling like, oh, I could have made a mistake here or I might be the one in need of accommodation, um, that feeling of distance, um, that provides a little relief from the hotness of the emotions too. Um, one little lesson I learned uh, is uh, that you should keep your cool and kill opponents with kindness. <laughs> uh, reach out to them, be polite to them, be professional, uh, and when tested, uh, be genuinely seeking to find a common ground. But of course, not everybody will do that. Now, we'll have one question here, and then we've run out of time. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I do year seven debating and I was wondering if you had any tips to do a more like effective rebuttal. <laughs> Terrific. <laughs> what school do you go to? Abbotsley. All right. Um, right, right near where I was. Um, so for me um, with rebuttal, the first thing is you want to be clear what it is that you're objecting to, right? And I think there's two things you could be objecting to with an argument. You could either be saying it's untrue, what they're saying, or you could be arguing it doesn't support the conclusion that they're arguing for. So it might be true, but it doesn't give us enough of a reason to do what you're telling us to do. So rather than just kind of expressing dissatisfaction, which I'm sure you don't do, you want to be clear what the nature of your objection is. And I think the second advice that I would give is once you've done the criticism, the harder and the necessary second step is to provide an alternative, right? So that's how we make arguments constructive rather than um, just about tearing down the other side. Is there another person there? Hello. Are you from Abbotsley? <laughs> We've got to have a public school person. <laughs> that's one here. <laughs> um... So debate, um, 
like, I'm not a debater, but um, I, like, my family and I, we have, like, lots of um, discussions. Um, like, my grandpa, he always, like, asks us questions. And um, I was wondering um, what um, you both thought, whether um, debate is the most effective for, like, like, sharing and breaking down ideas. Well, discussion is imperative. And you don't have to have it in a formal or structured way. Uh, my family, being mostly Anglo-Irish, were all slightly mad, and therefore <laughs> we had lots of arguments all the time, but they ended up with love. And I think if you've got that, you can get through life, whatever it hurls at you. I actually had a very similar experience where um, one of the things that made me feel prepared for debating was my mum's a big reader, and, um, and, and we've had, you know, even up to now, a, a practice of sharing books. She'd recommend something that she'd read, and, and I would read it, and we would talk about it, and she would always ask me what I thought about it. Right? And that's kind of a rare thing sometimes for a kid to be asked. Um, what did you think about this? And we sometimes disagreed in our view. And um, that was a kind of an informal discussion that had some of the hallmarks of making you feel as though your um, opinion was valued in that way. So for me, um, debating is just one language of disagreement. Right? So there's also negotiation, um, bargaining, mediation. Just the way that disagreement is just one appropriate response to the fact that we're all different, but we all have to find ways of living together, right? Disagreeing about our differences isn't the only appropriate one, but disagreeing is one important response, and debating is one important language that has something to say about this most central of questions, which is how can we disagree well with others? I think that's a good point on which... <laughs> To conclude our session, I promised that we would get out of here before the time was up, and <laughs> judges always keep their promises. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to thank uh, Bo Sio uh, for his uh, book, uh, for coming to answer questions, and for showing that in the midst of debate and disagreement, there can be wisdom. And I think we've seen that on display today. So thank you very much, folks. Congratulations. Buy the book. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.